0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about one of the most sensitive issues in all of China-Africa relations, and that is on the topic of corruption. And it's one that we actually haven't addressed in the seven years that we've been doing the show now, and it's overdue for us, but in part because it's such an endemic problem, both on the Chinese side and on the African side. A little bit of background here. The Chinese have a terrible reputation, and I cannot overstate that enough. When it comes to corruption and a lot of this is legitimate criticism, but some of it may not be so legitimate. We're going to get into that today. But the reason why corruption is such an interesting topic is because back home in China, uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping himself has made that the centerpiece of his administration going on a brutal anti-corruption drive. Uh, which, you know, depending on how you look at it, may or may not be fair to all people involved. Uh, It's in many ways an extrajudicial process. It's a highly controversial process. And so in some ways, because there's this focus on Chinese corruption at home, it seems only appropriate that we would start to look at Chinese corruption abroad. And in Africa, specifically Africa, Cobus, the Chinese have, again, as I mentioned, an absolutely terrible reputation.
1: Yes, and to not not to be too academic, but what, what what becomes really important here is not only the corruption itself and the fact that it's a big problem, but the way that the narra- the the narrative of cor- of corruption is constructed. In in the sense that, you know, China is notoriously corrupt. Africa is notoriously corrupt. Is the the arrival of the Chinese making Africa more corrupt? Some people say it is. So some people say they are. Um, other people are saying that the Chinese are essentially the the victims of endemic African corruption. So in order to, to sort out the problem, one has to also look at how the story is told.
0: Well, when it comes to actually looking into this issue, it's surprising that there's been re- very little research done by by universities and academics, at least that we've seen. And in part, well, maybe it's not that surprising because... You know, these are difficult issues to investigate. They're difficult issues to talk about. Uh, it's a very sensitive issue, with particularly with political and legal authorities on the African side. The Chinese, even on a good day, are very difficult to access. So we were very excited when uh, Xander Rounds, who's the research manager over at the China House Kenya in Nairobi, Um, He did a paper, Suitcases Full of Cash, the Collective Action Problem of Perceived Chinese Corruption in Kenya, and he delivered that paper and presented it at the recent China in Africa, Africans in China Academic Forum in Nairobi, and we are thrilled to have Xander on the show for the very first time. A very good afternoon to you from Nairobi. Welcome, Xander.
2: Uh, Asante sana.
0: Eric, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's really a pleasure, and it's exciting to talk to you about this topic because, as we've talked about. It, it doesn't get a lot of sunlight. People don't know a lot about it. So a lot of misconceptions and inaccuracies kind of fill the void of information. So tell me a little bit about when you first started kind of conceiving the idea of the research project to write this paper. What were some of the assumptions that you had in mind about Chinese corruption in Africa that you were trying to either confirm or refute in your research?
2: this has been a pet project for me since I first arrived in Nairobi over a year ago now. Um, and what happened was I kept encountering people, um, who would say to me, um, Americans or kind of Europeans, um, who, when I explained what I did, which is working with Chinese companies to try to get them to kind of, um, invest in a more socially responsible way. Um, they would laugh and then often they would emphasize, um, you know, the big problem of Chinese in Kenya in particular is that um, the Chinese are um, corrupting Kenya or are making corruption more prevalent here in Kenya. So I kept encountering this narrative um, and then I started kind of looking through newspapers and saw it over and over again. This this story that, that of China's corruption of Africa. And this story kind of goes because there's so much corruption in China, when, the chi- when Chinese people go out to Africa or wherever, they bring these corrupt practices with them. Now, this didn't square at all with the stories of the individuals, the Chinese individuals, you know, a huge diversity of different people, how they- their experience of bribery and corruption um, trying to do business here. So it was this kind of discontinuity, this, this gap between this kind of dominant narrative and the stories of those that I was meeting um, through my work that kind of led me to this research.
1: And uh, when, when we say the word corruption, do Chinese people and Kenyan people have the same understanding of what corruption actually means?
2: I, that's a very good question. Um, and, and corruption is obviously, you know, this huge, broad, kind of elusive concept. So it's important to talk about, you know, what we mean by that. Um, in... What I was particularly focused on in my research was what Chinese people here refer to as Xiao fei," which is like a, a small fee, and it corresponds pretty closely, I think, or I've seen, um, to what a Kenyan might call a "kitu kadogo," which is, you know, a, a small fee that you might pay to a police officer, um, that you might pay to a public official, um, which a series of of kind of studies of the situation in Kenya have shown is an incredibly prevalent practice. You know, Kobus, this
0: question of the definition of corruption, it, it can be a very culturally specific word. So, for example, you know, the Chinese have this concept of guanxi, which is relationships. And it's not defined in Chinese culture as corruption. Even And there are lots of things which are defined as corruption. But by kind of helping people and building relationships and the exchange of gifts and money sometimes, uh, that's not considered corruption in all instances. And so that's why when it comes up against the Western concept of corruption, which ends up being a very American, because even in the French concept... Uh, for example, there's a lot more gift giving and there's a lot more um, kind of greasing of wheels. And one of the reasons that the French have been so effective in places like Africa is that they have a culture that oftentimes uh, uses these kinds of methods. And then you live in societies like we live. I live in Vietnam. Xander, you're obviously in Kenya and, and uh, you know, in South Africa, you know, corruption's endemic. Uh, But that's how you get things done in these parts of the world. And so I guess to to Xander's point about the kind of moralism that comes from a lot of Americans in particular, you know, I I was listening to this um, professor talking about when he gave a speech, he was an American professor in London, and he said, you know, in the United States, we have no political corruption, zero. It does not happen. (laughs) And everybody kind of went, what? You know, he says, we have campaign finance. And what he meant by that was this idea that we have marketed our words in such a way that we've kind of insulated it from the word of what it really is, which is corruption. We have political corruption in America just as much as it's anywhere else. In fact, it's quite endemic. What we don't have a lot of times are the xiaofei, this or the fei, this, this small kind of on-the-street corruption. So I guess, you know, Xander, this, this idea of both the cultural relativity of corruption combined with the actual definition of it, how did you kind of deal with that in your paper, and it's again, we're doubling down a little bit on what CObus was asking you, but I'm just curious about you know the presentation of the actual concept so we can all agree on what a definition is so that we can then search for a solution
2: yeah, totally um, what was so I realized basically I needed to focus, and what was really interesting to me was this kind of like was this everyday um, fee paying um, that seemed to be a, a, a huge part of the lives of uh, individuals of Chinese nationals here in Kenya. Um, and what I found was, um, kind of precisely what you're getting at, um, which is engaging in these practices. Um, we kind of in America and myself, when we talk about corruption, it's this moral issue. It's when you're, when you're paying a bribe, you are engaging in a, in a moral act. But what I found is kind of layers of expectation. And I found that kind of corruption is is Chinese nationals expect um, other Chinese uh, nationals to engage in kind of corrupt practices to pay bribes so much so that it's just a part of the culture. One guy said to me, you know, this is Kenya. This is just how things get done. The question becomes interesting, though, uh, when you have kind of this group, this internal expectation where the expectation among Chinese nationals is that other Chinese nationals are going to pay bribes, you have a situation in which um, it becomes kind of costly or unlikely that a particular individual will not pay a bribe. And then what ends up happening is um, each individual is participating in this system, um, which has created this kind of external expectation um, that the Chinese are more likely to pay bribes, which may or may not lead to more targeting of uh, Chinese nationals. Um, and then you get this kind of, because of this culture, because of these group dynamics, you know, it's not a moral choice. Um, it's part of the, the, the way of life, the way of doing business. Um, but it becomes a really kind of interesting and messy and tricky um, challenge to confront, if that makes sense. It does. I mean,
0: Kobus, you know, in, in my daily life here, and I don't know about I think academia, you're a little bit more insulated. Um, yes. Corruptions is, is, is really a daily part of what I do in my work. Um, and just getting things done. If you want the cable guy to come over and fix things, he'll come, but he'll come faster if you throw a little bit of extra money his way. If you want to you know, you know, get something done in the government, you know, it'll get done. but It'll take a long time. But if you throw a little bit of extra his way, it gets done that much faster. So it's really just a part of everyday life. And I think what, what Xander's saying is there's just a pragmatic decision that people have to make as to whether you want to get something done or you don't. And if you don't kind of grease the system on the little small things, it just doesn't get done. Is that what you also see in South, you, you see in South Africa as well?
1: Yes, I think it is part of life in South Africa, but I think these, it, in South Africa, it's it's frequently, I mean, in my experience, it's frequently uh, somewhat more confined to particular areas in life. So, for example, um, the traffic police are, in South Africa are notoriously corrupt, um, and people get pulled over for, you know, very, very often, and then... It is almost almost explicitly stated that you know kind of that if you if you pay something then um, then they'll let you go. Um, otherwise, it might cause problems for you. Um, so so that is you know though there there are particular areas, and I think as far as I understand, in business and in property, some of those some of those issues also exist. Um, But, you know, kind of I think it becomes worse the bigger the company is Um, and maybe not on necessarily on the same kind of like day to day basis as us in some other countries in exactly the same way.
0: So it's interesting, you know, Xander, that we're hearing about the situation in South Africa. Clearly, there's a corruption problem in Kenya as well. And so then let's put the Chinese in this context. What did your research find after you interviewed, I think, 25 interviews with Nairobi based Chinese managers about their experiences with corruption. Let's get to the bottom line about kind of what you found from those 25 different interviews.
2: Really what I found are, are two things, and maybe small things, but kind of they have big implications for if we're thinking about how to change things. Um, the first thing is um, Chinese nationals in Kenya, um, and there's a huge diversity of those. I can't overemphasize that enough. There are all different types of, of, of Chinese people who are here doing all different types of things, um, but I'm going to kind of group them together for this for the moment um they often embody um they are often kind of participating and in, in kind of in this system and 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 they are paying small fees sometimes in really sketchy ways um but they also are often playing at the same time uh a, you know a slightly different role they are also kind of victims of this um and people who are kind of entrusted to work on their behalf end up taking advantage of them um and they're kind of Lots of uh, uh, lots of people felt that they were uh, they they expressed feelings of uh, that I've been extorted by you know police officers and tax officials and whatever. So that's the the kind of first finding. And the second finding is because among the Chinese community, um, paying bribes is expected behavior. Um, there's also this perception, and I started talking about this a little bit. But there's this perception that there is no choice but to pay bribes. Um, The the tricky thing is, as I as I mentioned before, is in doing so, because of this expectation, Chinese people end up paying bribes and contributing to this kind of expectation that in the Kenyan community that Chinese people are more willing to pay bribes, which may actually lead to um, more targeting of Chinese people. So those are the two. Um, So it's it's kind of a different way of looking at the the problem of corruption. And how does this impact on
1: their actual business? Um, you know, are, are they losing money because of all of these bribes that they have to pay?
2: Totally, particularly for some of the kind of smaller, small and medium-sized kind of private enterprises. You know, one woman said to me, it just doesn't make any sense. I pay all of my, you know, I pay all of my taxes. I keep good, uh, you know, records and everything like that. But because of how vague the the tax code is, whenever the officials come, they're able to kind of find a problem, and then I have to pay a bribe, and it's really hurting me. And then you've got another situation, which is probably a longer story for the for the pod. But um, another individual who um, is working at a state-owned enterprise, and he's selling his company because he, with the crackdown in China, he has found that it's just. You know it's too hard to avoid paying a bribe in Kenya, and he's not willing to risk becoming a target of the the, the crackdown campaign. And which the, is an interesting yeah, example. And, and, of and the, the
0: crackdown campaign has, has a very long arm. Uh, there's a, a program called Skynet. No no joke. For those of you who like the Terminator, uh, the Chinese have a program called Skynet, which basically. Uh, is a global dragnet to ensnare people who are allegedly corrupt. And so that concern in Africa is, uh, you know, as far away as it is from China, is actually a very legitimate fear. Let me, totally. let me ask you to step back a little bit, and I'm going beyond the scope of your research with this question, so you're absolutely free to say that you don't have a, an opinion on it. But you, you're talking about really at the kind of smaller scale uh, businesses. These are kind of, you know, Chinese enterprises on the ground. I'll, I'll take you back to the, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And in that deal, apparently, and this is all alleged, but uh, Africa China Confidential, which at that time was a magazine published out of London, um, said that in the six or seven billion dollar Sicomines mines deal, three hundred and fifty million dollars went to Joseph Kabila uh, as an undertable payment. Mm-hmm. And. Kobus has talked about this quite a bit. That the Chinese preference for dealing with elites and the lack of transparency in the dealings between China and African governments and these elites really lends itself to uh, to corruption. You know, all forms of corruption, whether it is paying for college kid, their, you know, leaders' kids to go to university, whether it's cash, whether it's trips, whether it's girls, whatever it is. And and I think this is where some of the, the bigger Western concern comes in. Which is ironic to me because for decades, even centuries, Western governments were nothing but corrupt in Africa. I mean, we have the Americans with Mobutu Sese Seko as really a great example in Zaire. Uh, So I don't think we in the West have a lot of, you know, leverage to kind of stand on a soapbox and moralize to other people. But fair enough, that being what it is. What are your opinions when you see these Westerners kind of moralizing and maybe they're not talking about the small scale corruption that you were talking about in your paper, but really the fear and the the sense that there's this large scale that we identified through Sam Pa. If you remember who Sam Pa was, he was this legendary China-Africa dealmaker who was, you know, again, allegedly, and he's in jail now in Beijing on corruption charges, I think, ironically, but this idea that he was, you know, just throwing money around like it was no tomorrow. So can you talk a little bit about the kind of state level and any opinions you might have on that and this kind of huge corruption that's maybe involved with the natural resource deals, the oil deals, the mining deals, and the hundreds of millions of dollars that allegedly flow to the coffers of state leaders?
2: Sure. Um, Really briefly, because I'm obviously, I haven't looked into this, um, specifically or in, in as much depth. But I think that story which you just told about um, kind of the corruption in the DRC, the, the kind of resource-related corruption, that is the foundation upon which the the dominant narrative that the Chinese are corrupting Africa um, stands upon. I guess my only point would be that ends up getting applied to all Chinese people, um, even even if Um, You know, it's only certain companies or certain individuals who are engaging in this ways. And I think that has kind of negative implications, um, consequences for Chinese doing business um, who are not on this same scale. Um, So my only point would be um, to emphasize how um, kind of the narrative that comes from that should not be kind of arbitrarily or kind of too generally applied.
1: Returning to, to the concept of, of, of petty corruption, um, one of the cases that you mentioned in your paper really intrigued me, where the one person says that they sometimes have to intentionally leave mistakes in their tax records for the authorities to find, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. that if they don't, then that causes a lot of problems for them. W- what is that about? It it was just mind-bending to me.
2: I th- so I actually encountered two people who said something similar to this. Um, and my interpretation of their interpretation of the event, um, is the, um, they believe that the official, uh, wants a fee no matter what. Um, and they will kind of keep digging and keep looking until they find it. In addition to, in in addition to the fact that they maybe don't believe that a Chinese company is actually doing everything, you know, correctly the way that they should be. Um, so they believe that the official is going to, Think well. This this doesn't actually this doesn't actually look right. Um, waste a lot of their time, um, kind of looking into it. When if they leave a small problem, and then that problem is discovered, then you know it's natural that, or you know the situation arises where they can pay a small fee, and then everyone will be on their way. So let's kind of step
0: back and take a look at what you found which is that the label and the accusation is not entirely accurate. Of course, the Chinese, some Chinese in Africa or in Kenya, according to research, uh, do engage in corrupt practices, but they're also the victims of corrupt practices as much in many ways. Um, So it seems like the label that a lot of Westerners put on to the Chinese is kind of, again, from the derivation of that is not entirely accurate because they're mixing kind of state corruption with this kind of small, small, small small-scale corruption. So your paper really went into lots of detail to, to kind of go through that. I'd like to talk about solutions and if there anything can uh, be done. And, you know, you know, and again, all three of us live in, in very, very corrupt societies where this is an endemic problem, a daily problem. It's a burden on business. It's a burden on government. Uh, government oftentimes is the actual facilitator of it. So the very people that you would want to enforce anti-corruption are oftentimes the most corrupt, whether it's the police exactly. or... You know, public administrators. So I guess you know my question to you in a place like Kenya, with people like the Chinese who come from societies where corruption is rather common, can anything really be done? I mean, really?
2: If if we're looking at corruption in the way it's often conceived, if we're if we're reading it as a problem in which you've got a good guy and a bad guy, and the good guy um, can't. Um adequately monitor the bad guy so the bad guy takes advantage of the situation and steals to his own benefit and that harms other people, which is how the which is how the the problem of corruption is often viewed. Um, what you do is you 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 maybe make it easier for the good guy to monitor the bad guy, or you you increase the costs and the risks um, for the bad guy so that he changes his behavior. Um, but if corruption is, as you've described it, Eric, endemic, systematic, um the people who would be addressing it are themselves engaging in it. Uh, that's not going to completely solve the problem. I think that there are solutions, and they're more complex and they're more messy and they're more difficult. And basically, um, I can only speak to the kind of the Chinese situation, but part of the reason that you have the expectations, the layers of expectations that, other Chinese people pay bribes that then leads to um, Kenyan authorities targeting uh, perhaps targeting Chinese nationals is because it's hard for um, Chinese nationals um, to kind of change the group expectations. It's hard for one individual to change group expectations. What you need is collective action. You need people kind of working together. um, So you have a situation where if all of the Chinese nationals here in Kenya were to trust each other, were to kind of be able to communicate really well, were, were to be able to work together really well, um, then they might be able to bear the shared costs of not engaging in corrupt practices, maybe, uh, or well, at least to a certain
0: listen, extent. Listen, if that's your best hope, that, that, is, that is never going to happen. Um, you know, right. bottom line, the, the Chinese will never – I mean, just like any group, they're – there are so many complexities in that, uh, in, the, in, the, in those relationships. And just because they're ethnically or nationally bound to one another, they don't get totally. along, you know, in that.
2: Totally. Um, but, but what you do get when you're thinking about the problem in this way is a different series of potential uh, strategies, potential solutions, not one of which will work on its own. But maybe if you're doing, instead of focusing on, I'm going to limit the ability of a, of a Chinese person to do business um, in Africa, which, um, you know, is the recommendation that flows from one conceptualization of corruption, maybe instead it's, maybe I'll try to create a space or an opportunity um, in, in Kenya, for example, to build trust between, and I know it's not going to be an easy thing, but to build trust or communication channels between Chinese nationals. To give a very specific example, um, one of the reason that... Um, Chinese so often, Chinese people here, tend to so often um, pay bribes to tax officials is because they often don't understand the tax code. And so they they get into problems, and then to get out of those problems, they end up paying a bribe. Now, what I have found is there's a huge discrepancy among Chinese nationals, which is unsurprising given the the heterogeneity of the communities here. there's a huge discrepancy in knowledge about what the tax code actually are, actually is, and actually contains, and what you're actually supposed to pay and what you're not. So if you were to organize a series of trainings for um, Chinese nationals um, to kind of attack these discrepancies, to kind of bring up everyone's knowledge about what the tax code actually is, what you're actually required to pay, maybe there will be less errors and maybe there will be less you know, less bribe paying and maybe this will kind of move the expectations in a different way. Maybe, maybe not. But you get, a, you, you get my point, you get a whole series of different potential strategies to go at this. Cobus, let
0: me put a proposal your way and you tell me if you think it'll work. The only place where I have seen systematic corruption remedied and fixed really well is Hong Kong. Hong Kong in the 1970s and 80s was controlled largely by the triads, and it was, these are the organized criminal syndicates. And it was one of the most corrupt places anywhere in the world. And the British colonial government created something called the ICAC, which is the Independent Commission Against Corruption. And what they did is they gave it un, almost unlimited powers that were entirely separate from the rest of the government. They could go in without a subpoena, and they could investigate, they could arrest... They could try, and because they had power outside of the political establishment, they were incorruptible, and that was the idea, was building this commission that was filled with clean kind of people who were were vetted very, very carefully and gave them an enormous amount of power, and that got the corruption out of the system, and to this day— Hong Kong stands well, maybe not quite as as good as it did, but it stands as a better place to do business. And they really ridded the system. Can you ever imagine something like that happening in parts of Africa?
1: South Africa had a similar kind of uh, institution um, that was that was both uh, investigating and prosecuting, um, and then and and was quite effective at rooting out corruption. And then because it was. It, it was then characterized by by a, a different flank of the government as essentially um, violating the separation of powers rule um, and that and it ended up being much weakened and essentially hamstrung um, and the, the perception in South Africa was that it, it, the reason it was actually done was because they were too effective against corruption too effective. Um, <laughs> so you know kind of I think uh, I'd be surprised yeah, I would <laughs> if, if, that, if that takes off in Africa, you know, kind of maybe within in a particular government, but I don't yeah, know.
0: I mean, I guess there's lip service paid to it. And particularly because this is an issue that the United States and Europe probably harp on quite a bit. There's probably some some effort made towards in this direction. Um, you know, Xander, I'd like to close the show back on what we talked about at the very beginning of the show, which is the moralism of the West. And you said that part of the reason why you did this paper was because you know, Westerners, and I'm suspecting that those were quite a few Americans, were kind of getting on soapboxes and saying, you know, the Chinese are bad. What is, what was, after you completed the research and you had some data to show and you had some findings to kind of bring to the discussion, when you had those similar discussions, what were the reactions of those people?
2: That's a a very very good question. I'm trying to think of any instances where I've, you know, thrown this upon someone who doesn't already who isn't already inclined to agree with me. And I don't know that I've gotten into it yet. Oh,
0: that would be fun. Okay.
2: We'll have to come back
0: to you in about three I'll months. Keep you we'll keep us updated. The article or the paper is suitcases full of cash, the collective action, the collective action problem of perceived Chinese corruption in Kenya, written by Xander Rounds. Is this paper online anywhere that people can look at if they're interested?
2: Uh, it, it hasn't been published yet. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with it. So, okay. but I'll, I'll I'll also keep you updated about that.
0: Good. Let us know because I know a lot of people would like to uh, to read it. It is absolutely fascinating. It's one of the few research papers that have been done. Uh, on this issue that is, again, so endemic and so widespread that, you know, it's something we run into every day. Xander is the research manager over at China House Kenya. For those of you not familiar with China House Kenya, it is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Chinese companies uh, and Chinese individuals and businesses in East Africa, and particularly in Kenya, with corporate social responsibility and consulting. And they've got a great program where they bring young Chinese students, uh, high school students, and college students to Africa and engage in wildlife conservation exercises and activities. Uh, It's really just overall a fantastic program, and we're really thrilled that, Xander, you were able to join us on the show today.
2: Well, thanks for having
0: me. Fantastic. We'll like to have you back again very soon. And Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.
2: The show may be over, but the conversation isn't. Eric and Kobus are continuing the discussion on Facebook. Head to facebook.com slash project where they're updating the newsfeed every four hours. Also, africachina.info is where the guys answer some of the toughest, most sensitive, even politically incorrect questions on all things related to the Chinese in Africa. That's africachina.info. And if you've got a China-Africa question that you've always wanted to know more about, just hit up Eric and Kobus by email. The address is questions at China Africa Project.com.